remind you that it is October 10th, 2020. On the 17th, which is one week from today, we are going to be going by the magic of Zoom to Rimini, Italy. Rimini is on the coast. It's been explained to me that it is on the coast of the sea and it is supposed to be very, very beautiful. I know we're all gonna have a good time. So that's gonna be one week from today. It is not at the same time. It is from 6.30 a.m. Pacific time to 10.30 a.m. Pacific time, keeping in mind that in Italy, it is quite a bit later in the day. So next week will be a bit of a change. And we're, we're, what's going to happen, I guess Pam told me or somebody told me, don't get the name wrong, they're going to post something on here that says, hey, if you're tuning into this, here's what's going on. So that's going to be next Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. That's the 16th, 17th, and 18th. We're going to Rimini, Italy, and there will be the passcode and the uh, number to get in there on Zoom that you can do next week. Now, again, before we go on our, what we're going to do today, <clears throat> remember that that is going to have to be translated. So it goes a little slower because a lot of those folks do not speak English. So everything will be translated from English to Italian, and then questions will be translated back from Italian into English. They were gonna do it in Hebrew, but I was the only one, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But, okay, so we have been talking about the chapter, We Agnostics, and this is the only chapter that is completely dedicated to step two. We get introduced to step two in Bill's story on page eight at the very bottom of the page where it says my musing was interrupted by the telephone the cheery voice of an old school friend asked if he may come over he was sober and that was ebby thatcher and ebby thatcher's visit to bill wilson did something for god with god's guidance that had never been done before that we know of and the reason we don't know about it is if it was done before, the people or the persons who were involved never took the information and moved it forward. So what happened on that very, very magical day in November of 1934? You had Bill Wilson, who had the problem that he got from Silkworth. The problem is he, he had the problem, but what, what I mean is he knew the problem. The problem was the allergy of the body and the twist of the mind. And the allergy of the body is, is, is activated by the introduction of substances into our physical body. Flour, sugar, artificial sweeteners for me, uh, certain fats, they make it impossible for me to control the amount that I'm gonna consume once I consume these, these things. I'm not on any page yet, I'm just reviewing. And when we get done, we're gonna be on page 50. So we're not on any specific page just yet. We're just reviewing. And then we see how Bill struggles with this idea. He's struggling with this idea of a spiritual solution. 
So Bill knew the problem. He knew the allergy of the body and he knew the twist of the mind. What he didn't know was the solution. And the solution is the spiritual awakening, or in his case, the spiritual experience as the result of the steps. Now, what does the spiritual awakening do for me? It does for me what chocolate does for me, only slower. Chocolate gives me an immediate effect. Dr. Silkworth says in his opinion that we drink for an effect. And what is that effect? It is an instant sense of ease and comfort that comes to us instantly when we do this. Now, Dr. Silkworth puts the word instantly in there to illustrate for us why our mind is so fixated on eating because it is an instant relief to the pain of the buildup of human emotion. Remember that when we feel feelings, fear or selfishness or jealousy or guilt or happiness or shame or remorse, when we feel that the world just isn't sticking to our script, that fear, that frustration builds and builds and builds and builds and builds and we cannot stand that feeling anymore. And our brain knows that if we eat certain foods, for me, I'm just talking about for me, those foods are going to give me an instant sense of ease and comfort. And that sense of ease and comfort is called the effect. Dr. Silkworth calls it the effect. That effect is what we're looking for. He also says in the doctor's opinion that that feeling, that sensation is so elusive that we will pursue it to the gates of insanity or death. And if I were to describe to you how I was living before recovery, you would know that that was death. Now, I don't have to describe it for you as we were talking before the meeting, some of us. Every one of you that's here and every one of you that's not here came in here because things went badly for you. And we're going to be talking about that this morning. We're going to be talking about that in the very first paragraph that we're going to cover. And that's going to describe the defeat of, of your life, the defeats that led you into a belief that there must be another way. And as we look at the chapter, what I want to make clear, and I know we've, we've talked about this over and over again, but it bears repeating, what is an agnostic? And I want to make clear the distinction between the agnostic, the atheist, and the believer. The atheist is a person who, does, who believes with all their heart that there is no God. There's no religious deity up in the sky with a long beard or whatever it is you, you know, you, you think in your mind. There is, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me for just one second. Thank you. There is no such deity. There is no such being. A believer believes that there is a God and an agnostic is somewhere in the middle. Ag means without, Gnostic means knowledge. An agnostic is someone who lacks enough knowledge to make that decision. Agnosticism 
does not necessarily have to be universal. You don't have to be agnostic in all areas of your life. You may have areas of agnosticism where you're not quite sure that God will help you. Let me just take an example and then we'll get to the text of today. Let's just say, for example, you may be a very strong, fervent observer of your particular religion. So you are a believer and you believe that God did this or God did that or the burning bush or the splitting of the Red Sea or the Cubs winning the World Series. Whatever miracles God did, you see and you, oh, that's a miracle of God. But you may have doubt because you lack the knowledge that God can be personal to you, to me. And this is something that I struggled with for a very long time. Does the God who protects whatever, or does this or that, does this God have a concern about me and my waistline and my health? And the answer for me, I'm not saying this is an answer for you, not, and I, again, I hate talking about this subject. This is the most sensitive subject to talk about. It is the most sensitive subject to present. And it is the most controversial one. I don't mind talking about step four, step nine, step six. It's very straightforward. It's like presenting math. It's like presenting arithmetic. Two and two is four. I don't care whether you're black, white, green, yellow, purple, or orange. Two and two is four. Four and four is eight. Four minus four is zero. It doesn't matter who you are. But when you want to talk about God, we start to enter into some controversy. So I had a pocket of agnosticism because I believed that there was a God, but I wasn't certain that that God would take care of me if I asked him to. And I also had quite a skewed view of God taking care of me. God does not elevate me or, or exalt me over other people. In other words, when I said, well, okay, I'm going to believe in this God, and, and I want to win the lottery, not just once, I want to win it every week so I could be a multi-trillionaire, that didn't happen. And I want this girl or that house or that car or that job, and that didn't happen. So I blamed God and I said, oh my God, if you're there, why are you doing this to me? And what I didn't see was that I had steps right in front of me and people all around me from the very beginnings of my life in OA, I had people in my midst at Swedish Covenant Hospital and, and Ravenswood Hospital and Pottawatomie Park and all these other various places that would help me to work the steps. So the Yiddish word of the day really is machloichas. What is machloichas? It's a war. And there was a war going on within me. The war was, if there's a God, then how come I'm not whatever? I'm not the first baseman for the Cubs or I'm not whatever. So I had areas of agnosticism. And those areas of agnosticism can kill me. And what does the big book tell me again and again? God either is or he isn't. What is my choice to be? 
but I'm not going to be exalted over other people because God loves everybody equally. And God, in my understanding, in my life, in my brain, in my heart, does not have grandchildren. We are all children of a living creator. Even the big book says that. So I'm not going to be worse than you, and I'm not going to be better than you. And in my disease, I could not look at you in the eye. I'm either better than you or I'm not as good as you. And either way, it was killing me to live that way. It is not a way for me to live. So there were pockets of agnosticism. If I believe in God, how come I got divorced? Well, my wife chose to divorce me. What was I supposed to do? But God saw me through that so that 10 years later, excuse me, I'm still here. I'm still abstinent. I'm still in recovery. I'm still doing the work. And so that 10 years after this devastating divorce, I have survived and prevailed because God elevates me above my disease. He will pick me up and rise above the disease. Agnostic does not mean atheist. An atheist believes there is no deity. An agnostic just isn't certain, isn't sure. So ag means without and gnostic means knowledge. So I have to look at my life with a sponsor or with others and say, where in my life am I still agnostic? And there may be pockets in our lives where we are still not sure. We don't have enough information. On page 45 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says in the middle of the page 45, well, that's exactly what this book is about. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. And if that's going to be the main object of my life, if that's going to be the main object of my life, then it better be the main, I mean, the main object of the book, then it better be the main object of my life is to find that power greater than myself, which will solve my problem. And then it says on page uh, 47, it says in the middle of the page, do I now believe or am I even willing to believe that there is a power greater than myself? And that is the guts of step two. You don't have to believe anything. You just have to be willing to believe that there is a power greater than yourself. All right, let's get to today. We're going to be on page 50. And on page 50, the very last paragraph of the page begins with, here are thousands of men and women. And I'll give you a second to get there. We're on page 50. And it says, here are thousands of men and women. Okay. Here are thousands of men and women, worldly indeed, that they flatly declare that since they have come to believe in a power greater than themselves, to take a certain attitude toward that power and to do certain simple things. What are those simple things? The simple things are the steps. There has been a revolutionary change of their live, way of living and thinking. I live differently today in recovery 
I think differently in, in recovery. Let me give you some very specific examples because that'll illustrate it for you better than just you know the generalizations. When I get up in the morning and I say that I'm not supposed to pray for anything except knowledge of God's will and the power to carry that out, that is a very different way of living than I lived before. When I lived before recovery, what I thought about was what am I gonna eat, what am I not gonna eat? What am I gonna do to make some money? What am I gonna do to take care of me? How am I gonna outthink, outmaneuver, outmanage, and outhustle you so that I can get what I want from you or what I want from the world? Today, when I get up, what I'm thinking about are some of those things, yes, I'm human. I need to make a living, I'm in sales. If I don't sell, I don't make money. Some of that does enter my mind. I'm not a saint. But what I will say to you is what else is in my mind is, how am I going to help so-and-so? How am I going to do this or that? Or gosh, I, I wanna get on the line because I wanna listen to the vision meeting in the morning or, oh, I'm gonna take a phone call from this sponsee or that person. So I live differently. I think differently. I'm not as frightened that I won't be taken care of. What I'm more frightened of often is me and my effort. God will always provide a result as long as I make the effort. God will do for me what I cannot do for myself, but he does not do for me what I can do for myself. And what can I do for myself? Well, I can work my business. I can get on the phone and I can make sales presentations. Because if I don't make sales presentations, there'll be no sales. God won't do that for me. But what God always does is when I walk to him, he runs to me. He runs to me with results that are better than anything I could have planned. And after a while, I start trusting in that. But you see, at first for me to trust in that, to trust that God will be there with a result that is better often than anything I could have imagined for myself takes work. And that brings us back to the wording of step two. Came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. And I get phone calls from people all the time that say, I'm just not there. I'm just not there. I'm not a believer. I just, I have too many doubts. And my response to them is, what are you going to do today? Not what are you going to think? Not what are you going to pray? What are you going to do today to cultivate a relationship with a higher power of your choosing? And when I do that, it brings it into focus because came to believe suggests that it is a relationship between me and God that has to be worked on. Now, I don't know everybody on this line as well as I know some of you, but the people that I do know, I've worked at the relationship and you've worked at the relationship. There's at least one person on the line. I don't know if they're still on the line because I can't really go through here and see who's here and who's not. I don't, because I'm trying to think of what I'm going to say and things like that. 
you've come to the Scottsdale Fellowship Club and you've come to my retreat in Dallas and you've come to Florida and you've come to Canada and you've come. So we've cultivated a relationship over time where I learned about you, you learned about me, and now our relationship is deeper and richer than it was the very first time we ever spoke. One of you, and I don't know if she's still on the line, I've known for over 40 years because we went to meetings together back in Chicago. We grew, we didn't grow up together, but we grew in program together. We learned together. That takes time, that takes effort. And I have to put that kind of time and put that kind of effort into my relationship with God. So that's why it says came to believe, not believe that a power greater than myself. The word came suggests strongly that this relationship between me and God is gonna be in the developmental stages all the time. It is gonna be changing, it is gonna be evolving over time. Came to believe means I'm going to have to work at it. God's going to be there for me, but I have to work at it. Now, again, I want to remind you, this is a very sensitive subject to talk about. I hate talking about it. I wish we could just go talk about steps three and four immediately. I'd much rather talk about that because it's simple. It's very straightforward. I don't have to do as much thinking. Maybe your God is not changing. Maybe your God is permanently the way your God is. That's okay. That's fine. It's God as you understand it. It's not God as I understand it. It's not God as anybody tries to get you to believe in. It's God as you understand it. There's no wrong answer here. The only thing that's required is a willingness to believe. You don't have to believe. Willingness to believe that there is a power greater than yourself. That's all that's required of you. Are you willing to believe that there's a power greater than yourself? Are you the be all and the end all? Are you the alpha and the omega? No. So let's just get off on the right foot with this power by being willing to believe that you are not the be all and the end all. And that's all that's required. I've said this before, I'm gonna say it this morning. There's two things I need to know about God. And there are philosophers and historians and poets, and there's rabbis and ministers and priests, and there are lay people and poets and authors that are going to muse today about what God is and what God is not. There are two things I need to know about God today. There is one and it's not me. There is one and it's not me. And that's a good beginning for me. I don't have to have any more of a beginning than that. That's my beginning. That's my launching pad, if you will. In the, I'm on page 50 at the bottom. In the face of collapse and despair, in the face of the total failure of their human resources, they found that a new power, peace, happiness, and sense of direction flowed into them. I came in here after a lifetime of wanting to die a lot more than I wanted to live. I remember being six and seven years old and people would just beat me unmercifully, not physically necessarily, but emotionally. They would beat me down because I was a fat little boy. 
and they would say things like fatso and tubby and fats, fatty, fatty, two by four, can't get through the kitchen door. And no matter what the situation, I was impaired by the fact that I was overweight. I couldn't swim, nor run, nor walk, nor jump, or do the things that other little boys could do because I was a fatso. And it wore on me. And I knew even when I was six and seven years old that I couldn't live with the food and I didn't think I could live without the food. It was too much a part of my life. And I wanted to die a lot more than I wanted to live. I looked around and I had a mentally ill mother. My mother had three distinct personalities. She could be a three-year-old. She could be a screaming, raving lunatic or she could be a very together woman. You never knew what you were gonna get or how long it was gonna last. And I was upset with her and I blamed her for everything because she was mentally ill. I just wanted her to be young and normal. I wanted her to look like Laura Petrie. I wanted her to be like Laura Petrie. And I wanted my dad to be like Dick Van Dyke. And my dad was old. He was 54 years old when I was born. And my father was an immigrant who never really made a living. He really never knew how to make a living. He just didn't, if it wasn't for his social security, we would have lived in the street under a bridge. And he was 54 years old when I was born. So the, by the time I went to grammar school, he was 60. And by the time I graduated from high school, he was 72 years old. He wasn't one generation in front of me. He was two. My father was older than the grandparents of many of my friends. And I didn't have the answer uncles or cousins or anything like that as a child, but I always had really good friends. But I never felt quite up to living in the world. I never felt like I belonged. And as we got, as we got older and girls started coming into the equation and the girls would giggle and flip their hair when my friends were around. They would never giggle and flip their hair when I was around. The only thing those girls wanted to know from me is, does your friend, you could fill in the name, does he like me? Does he think about me? Does he like this other girl? That's the only reason they ever spoke to me was to try to get intel on my friends. And it was very, very devastating to my psyche. It was very devastating. And if you'd have told me that I was not to go on my first date with a girl until I was 35 years old, I don't know how I would have withstood it, but somehow I made it and somehow I survived the loneliness and I survived the physical onslaught of this disease at such weights. I survived the shame of writing bad checks. I survived the shame of being a laughing stock wherever it is I went. Children would laugh at me. Adults would laugh at me. I would break furniture. I broke furniture many, many times. I got stuck in cars. I couldn't get in a car. I couldn't get out of a car. I could barely walk. I could barely stand. I had ankles the size of, of thighs, of calves, of stomachs because of the swelling in my lower extremities. And I looked at God as a tyrant that was punishing me by giving me life. I just wanted him to take me. And by the time I was 17, 18 years old, doctors were pronouncing me dead all the time. They told my mother, I told this story here, I broke my ankle when I was 17 years old. And Dr. Max Bernstein at Edgewater Hospital in Chicago, he looked over his glasses like this. My mother's name was Virginia. 
He says, you know, Virginia, he said it very meanly. He said, you know, Virginia, he isn't going to live to see 30. He's over 300 pounds. He's 17 years old. He's over 300 pounds. And he really got mad at my mother. He said, you better do something and do it now. And my mother burst into tears. And on the way back from the hospital, we went to the 33 Flavors ice cream store and ate, ate, ate ice cream because we were both compulsive overeaters. And this is the only way we knew to cope. So life was no picnic for me. Life was lonely. Life was hard. Life, I had no money. I had nothing. I couldn't look good. I couldn't do the things other people could do. So I did not come in here on a roll, but I can tell you today, yes, I could use some plastic surgery because I've got stuff hanging here and I got bubby arms and all that. I'm not going to go do it. I'm not going to go do it. But it says here in the face of total failure of their human resources, my way failed. By the time I met some of you that I've talked about, particularly one of you, my human resources had failed. And it says here, <clears throat> they found that a new power, peace, happiness, and sense of direction flowed into them. There are 119 people on the line right now. I cannot even fathom that if you would have told me as a seven-year-old or a 10-year-old or a whatever, 20, 30-year-old, that someday this would be the case, I would have laughed in your face. But yet right now it's reality. There is hope. There is a better life, but I had to take action. And the action very specifically that I had to take came to me when I realized that I could not beat the game. I could not beat the game. And so I started taking action after action after action that I did not yet even believe in. I did not yet even believe in it, but I saw that it was working in other people. And so what did I have to lose? I had nothing to lose. I went, I, I, I absolutely went crazy with this idea of God because I believe that God was against me. I believe that God was punishing me. And why would I believe in a punishing God? And so I had to revise my idea of who God is, not who he was or who he will be, but who he is. And I had to get up in the morning at my condo on Sheffield and Waveland across from Cubs Park. And I had to do a gratitude list. And I went to meetings every day, sometimes two. And I worked and I worked and I worked at this very, very hard. And so my concept of God is as a result of a lot of work. It didn't come to me naturally. It did not come to me organically. Some people organically have a belief in God. I don't know where this comes from. I don't know how they get it. I don't have that. I have to work at it and work at it and work at it. Let's continue. Bottom of 50, very bottom, last two sentences. This happened soon after they wholeheartedly met a few simple requirements. And what are those requirements? The belief that I can't and the belief that God could and would if he were sought. That I can't. 
I had to stop thinking that if I just lost weight, everything would be fantastic. I've lost a lot of weight and things are not that fantastic. They're not, there's nothing in this book that says, okay, guys, now everything goes your way. Now your spouse is never going to die. Now everybody's going to love you. Every night we're going to dance together and there's going to be stardust music and you're going to, it doesn't go that way. There's nothing in here that says every day I win the lottery. There's nothing in here about that. But what there is in here is the assurance that if I do this work, I don't have to eat candy bars. I don't have to eat Chips Ahoy cookies. It's Saturday morning. I should have finished off a couple of boxes of, uh, of Captain Crunch or a couple of boxes of God knows what cereal by now. And I haven't done that. And the thought never crossed, crossed my mind. Bottom of 50, very bottom last word. Once confused and baffled by the seeming futility of existence. Now let's take a look at that sentence once confused and baffled by the seeming futility of existence. Why were we here on life? If all I'm here to do is eat and all I'm here to do is to get made fun of and all I'm here to do is to fail at school and get substandard grades at school and be embarrassed by that and make a substandard living and work at a dead end career that goes nowhere. If all that's gonna be my fate, what is the point of all this? They show in the underlying reasons why they were making heavy going of life because I saw nothing better. I knew that I couldn't live with the food and I couldn't live without the food. I'm at the top of 51. I'm at the top of 51. Leaving aside the drink question, they tell why living was so unsatisfactory. They show how the change came over them when many hundreds of people are able to say that the consciousness of the presence of God, notice that presence of God is capitalized, is today the most important fact of their lives. They present a powerful reason why one should have faith. There is nothing more important to me today than the knowledge that there is a presence of God, that I have a consciousness of that God. I own this wall. See this wall? It's not a fancy wall. It's not a wall that's in the best neighborhood. It's a very modest home. I don't have a backyard. I don't have a lot of accoutrements of some, you know, I don't have a great big house. This house belongs to me. This is my house. I have a roof over my head. I have air conditioning. Thank God. <laughs> I live in the desert. I'd be dead. I have central air conditioning. I have heating. I have windows that the sun comes in. I have television and cable and internet. I have everything a human being can use. When or if I need a bigger house or a different house, or I have to move into assisted living or whatever, then God will take care of me at that time. But for right now, I have a great house and it's in a great neighborhood. I live in Scottsdale, Arizona. I live right near everything. I am right in the middle of, you know, there's an expression here. 
If you can't find the stuff at Scottsdale and Shade, that's the two big intersections that are one minute from my house. If you can't find what you're looking for at Scottsdale and Shade, you don't need it. You don't need it. The doctors that I go to are one minute away, except for my cardiologist. They're one minute away. I have all the shopping. I live right off of Resort Row. Now, Scottsdale is a big resort town. Tourism is our number one industry. There isn't a restaurant or a hotel or any that isn't one minute from my house. Anything and everything you could want. I might drive 4,000 miles a year, maybe, usually closer to three. Usually closer to three. There's nowhere to go. Everything's right here. I have a very safe neighborhood. 4.30 in the morning, 4.15 in the morning, I'm out walking. When you guys are listening to the vision meetings in the morning, I'm listening too. They start at 4 a.m. out here, the vision meetings. There's the two of them that I listen to. I can't listen to the other one because I'm working. But when I'm listening, usually I'm outside walking. I'm as safe as a baby in his mother's arms. There's virtually no big crime here. It's fantastic. Now it gets a little hot in the summertime, of course. But okay, we live with it. But for right now, from now until the middle of May, it's flipping paradise here. We have 75 degree Christmas days, 75 degree New Year's days, 75, 80 degree Super Bowl days. You can't get any better than that. No snow, no ice, no none of that stuff. I don't ever have to worry, oh my God, tomorrow it's gonna snow, tomorrow it's gonna have ice. How am I gonna start the car? Am I gonna fall down? I don't have any of that stuff here. It's fantastic. Let's continue. Page 51. This world of ours has made more material progress in the last century than in all the millenniums that went before. Almost everyone knows the reason. Students of ancient history tell us that the intellect of men in those days was equal to the best of today. Yet in ancient times, material progress was painfully slow. The spirit of modern scientific inquiry, research and invention was almost unknown. In this realm of the material, men's minds were fettered by superstition, tradition, and all sorts of fixed ideas. Some of the contemporaries of Columbus thought around Earth preposterous. Others came near putting Galileo to death for his astronomical heresies. Galileo believed, <clears throat> he was Italian, Galileo believed that the, the thinking that had gone on before was wrong. And what was the thinking? The thinking was the earth never moved, that the sun, the stars, and the planet revolved around the earth. And Galileo said that is wrong by the evidence I see clearly, that it is the earth along with these other planets that are moving and the sun is permanently fixed in the sky and we are moving around that sun at a pace of about one revolution or one orbit per 365 days. Does that sound familiar? We go around once every year? Well, we accept that today, but for centuries, and Galileo was, I believe, excommunicated. I could be wrong about that. I'm no expert, but I believe they excommunicated him. He was forced to live in shame. Uh, because of his beliefs. What kind of Galileo-like beliefs was I hanging on to? 
what kind of old ideas that don't work was I afraid to investigate? Because even though it didn't work, even though it was a failure, even though my life was in a shambles, there was one thing above anything that scared the crap out of me, and that was the concept of change. I hated change. I wanted everything homeostasis, never changes, self-regulates. I didn't want to change anything. And then when I changed it, it was only under the most excruciating conditions. And that change came because people pulled old ideas out of my hands through clenched fists that I would not let go of. And I wanted to hang on. And I wanted to eat Girl Scout cookies. And I wanted to eat pizza. And I didn't want to let go of being, I'm right and you suck. And that doesn't work. Didn't work for me then, it's not gonna work for me now. Leaving aside Christopher Columbus who believed that the world was round instead of flat, Galileo is a, also a perfect example. He looked at the evidence and said, no, the earth is moving. The earth is moving. And people said to him, that's crazy. He was right. He was right. And the program is right. And the steps are right. And the work is right. And the abstinence is right. And the, the things, the principles of service are correct and they are right. And I had to pay money back that I didn't want to pay back and I paid it back and I didn't miss a meal, God. I had to go to people that I thought were jerks and make amends to them. And I thought, man, Bafangu, you guys hurt me more than I hurt you. And I made amends to those people. And I was right. It was right because my life was better. My life got better. What kind of insanity am I hanging on to? What kind of war am I fighting? I'm fighting battles that just don't exist. Machloichas is the Yiddish word for war. Machloichas. What am I hanging on to? If Galileo is giving me information that says, no, here's the fact, here's the observation that it is the sun that stays in one place and the universe revolves around the sun, here are the calculations. Here is the overwhelming evidence. And they told him, you're crazy. You're wrong. You're excommunicated. Screw you. Where am I doing that in my life to myself and others? Whatever God is, whatever your conception is, is fine. But I had to do the work the work of living in recovery, not the work of trying to suck the marrow out of the bones of life so I could have my own way. It doesn't work that way for me. I had to put down 
the food put down my weaponry. I have a friend that lives in Syracuse, New York. She's a beautiful, beautiful soul. And what does she say? She says, the war is over. The war is over. Brilliant. The war is over. It's not me against God. It's not me against, I have to stop that. What do you want me to do, God? My way sucks. I'm open to a new ideal. And if I found out at any time that eating seven, eight boxes of Girl Scout cookies in the car at one time was the way to live, I would go back to doing it. If I found out that swearing all the time and writing bad checks and lying to people and manipulating people was the way to go, I would go back to it. But it's not. It's not the way to go. This takes work, but the work yields tremendous dividends. I hope I'm making sense. Sometimes I don't know because I can't see the feedback. When I do a live retreat, I can sort of feel the room. I can see the faces. I can hear, you know, the audible the feedback kind of thing. Here it's much tougher because I don't know if I'm making enough sense. I hope I am because this is very, very important stuff. I have to stop fighting those battles that just don't exist. My way does not work. God's way works. Galileo was right. It is the sun that stays in one place, and it is the universe that revolves around that life-giving sun. He was right. Let's continue. Page 51, last full paragraph on 51. We asked ourselves this, are not some of us just as biased and unreasonable about the realm of the spirit as, we, as were the ancients about the realm of the material? In other words, where am I being stupid? Where am I being pig-headed? Where am I being stubborn? And what are all those things universally words for? Stubborn, stupid? Scared. I'm scared of change. The devil I know is better than the devil I don't know. I'd rather bathe in a vat of excrement than come out, clean myself off, and go into the unknown but I'm laying in a vat of gar of crap, but I'm unwilling to change because it's the known rather than the unknown. And that has paralyzed me for the entire length of my life. I don't want to go into the unknown, untested and untried because it scares me. And that's why I need steps two and 10. Even in the present century, American newspapers were afraid to print an account of the Wright brothers' first successful flight at Kitty Hawk. Had not all efforts at flight failed before? Did not Professor okay. I look at the clock and I'm ready to plot here. Okay. Did not Professor Langley's flying machine go to the bottom of the Potomac River? Was it not true that the best mathematical minds had proved man could never fly? Had the people said that God had reserved this privilege to the birds? Only 30 years later, the conquest of the air was almost an old story, and airplane travel was in full swing. 
1903 at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, two guys that ran a bicycle repair shop, Orville and Wilbur Wright, flew an airplane for 53 seconds, and the world was never the same. There are four things, according to Scott Peck, the famous philosopher, there are four things ultimately that the 20th century will be noted for 35,000 years from now, 40,000 years from now. And the first one will be the first successful flight at Kitty Hawk because the airplane thrusted us into a new way of war, a new way of transportation, a new way of commerce. It just changed everything. The second thing is the um, atomic slash computer age. That's another thing that the 20th century will be noted for. The atomic slash computer age, man's landing on the moon, and the development of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous by the original 100 alcoholics founded by Bill Wilson and Dr. Robert Holbrook Smith in Akron, Ohio on June the 10th, 1935. And the book was published on April the 10th, 1939. Those are the four things that this century will be noted for in the thousands and thousands of years to follow. But the Wright brothers did something that everybody in the world said could not be done, should not, well not should not, but could not be done, fly an airplane. There were balloon flights as far back as hundreds of years before that, but nobody had ever flown a plane. The greatest minds mathematically proved that it could not be done, and yet, I'm going to assume all of us, I don't, if there's somebody out here that's never been on an airplane, then I'm sorry, then there is an exception, but I'm going to assume all 119 of you have been on a plane. We get on the plane and we don't think a thing of it. We don't think a thing of it. We know that the plane is going to go and fly and go and do, and we'll be fine. We'll be fine because thousands and thousands and thousands of flights that went before us were very successful. But at the time, it took a mind that rejected the known, that rejected the current status quo to say, I know a better way. And that's what we have to go and do in ourselves, in our souls and say, what I'm doing isn't working. And if I'm failing, then I have to make those changes. If you are a sponsor, Remind sponsees that if your way isn't working, you know what I can't stand? I'll tell you what I can't stand. Watching people die from this disease. I hate it. I hate this goddamn disease. I do. I hate it. But one of the things that sentences people to a death is they come in and they want to give me their credentials. I'm in AA and I worked the steps and I did this and I'm in Al-Anon and I did that. Those are great. But if those were effective to keep you out of the food, we wouldn't be having this conversation. I wouldn't know you. So somewhere along the line, food took the place of the alcohol and became your drug of no choice. Somehow you switch seats on the Titanic. And so you switched from alcohol to food. 
somewhere along the line, the narcotics stopped working and you came around to noticing that a donut did for you what you could not do for yourself. That that donut gave you an instant sense of ease and comfort that you love. And so you started eating donuts. We have Alcoholics Anonymous meetings two blocks from my house at the North Scottsdale Fellowship Club. Some of you have been there. And there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of men and women who go to those meetings. And some of the, and they're from 5 a.m. to 1 a.m., 365 days a year, two blocks from my house. That's why I live here. I'm two blocks from a meeting. So if I retire and I can't walk anymore, I can get on my scooter and go to a meeting. Two blocks from that, I didn't see COVID coming. I don't think any of us did. But the bottom line is this, when they walk in there, when they walk in with donuts, and we spend a lot of money for donuts, there's a Krispy Kreme right here, it's like a shark attack. Because a lot of these guys are now 300 pounds, even though they have 10 and 20 and 30 and a million years of sobriety, it's like a shark attack because they switch seats on the Titanic. And the reason I'm bringing that up is, yes, you may have recovered in another program, but this is the last house on the block. And you're gonna to have to let go of those ideas of what you've done before and open yourself up to the set-aside prayer. What is the set-aside prayer? It's not in the big book. Don't look for it. Don't ask me where it is in the big book. It's not in here. God, help me set aside everything I know, everything I think I know about you, the program of recovery and the big book, and help me accept and welcome new ideas. That's it. Help me accept and welcome new ideas. And that's what I have to do all the time. Accept and welcome new ideas. Now, I'll let you in on a secret, but I don't want you telling anybody. That is so hard for me. I don't want to accept and welcome new ideas. I want to stay stuck in the old. And if it worked then, why isn't it working now? Because I have to keep evolving in my recovery. So like Galileo, I have to say, hey, there's another way. There's another way. Let's continue. We don't have much time left. And I've been cutting it off at 11 rather than 11.15 because you guys seem to like the extended Q&A over the extended text. So we're just going to cover one more paragraph and then we'll do the bedevilments in two weeks when we meet back here. But in most fields, our generation, I'm on page 52, but in most fields, our generation has witnessed complete liberation of our thinking. I have to liberate my thinking. I have to liberate my thinking. How do I do that? By divorcing myself from everything I, everything I think I know about God and the big book and the program of recovery. I have to divorce myself because everything I knew was in the past, but this is October 10th. 2020. I've never lived in this day before. Showing a longshoreman a Sunday supplement describing a proposal to explore the moon by means of a rocket. And he'll say, I bet they do it. Maybe not so long either. Well, the book was published on April the 10th, 1939. 
and man landed on the moon in July of 1969, 30 years after the publication of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. Our age, not our age, characterized by the ease with which we discard old ideas for new by the complete readiness with which we throw away the theory or gadgets which does not work for something that does. Now, we're not going to do the bedevilments today. We're going to save them for two weeks. But there is a...